I'm only 5'7". I really should be up there. My driver's license is a full body shot. So... Well, it is good to be here this morning. Uh, I do represent a ministry known as Unmuted. Unmuted is about giving victims of uh, trauma their voices back. Um, I have written four books. I travel the country. I'm in probably about 16 or 17 states in the last year. Uh, I travel and minister in Teen Challenge centers. We do workshops on recovering from trauma. In fact, uh, my first book is on recovering from trauma, and it's through the power of your testimony. How many know that there is healing power just in telling your story? Revelation 12 speaks of this. It's called Pen Your Pain in the Parables. Uh, this book is adopted into curriculums of teen challenges all through the Northeast. In fact, right now I have a center, or two centers in Tennessee, that are looking for uh, 50 copies of this book. So if you'd like to sponsor a student, um, I, I always do it at a wholesale rate. It's $10 versus 20 But we have 50 students in T, uh, Tennessee, Teen Challenge. You could see me afterwards if you want to sponsor a student. Uh, they'll get a book uh, this coming fall, and uh, it's used as a part of their, uh, their healing curriculum. Also, I have a book that just came out. It's called Surviving Feelings. Anybody that's had a tough time with emotions, handling emotions, is a biblical and, uh, you know, mixed with biblical... Uh, behavioral science and the Bible. You can get a devotions called Surviving Feelings. And then lastly is Dr. Jesus. This came out last year. This covers all mental health issues. If you've got more issues than Time Magazine, if you're like me, this is the book you want to get, Dr. Jesus, Devotions for Mental Health. Each book is 20. If you get all three, you can get it for 55. I really wanted to charge you 60, but she got me down to 55, my wife. So anyway, honey, you want to say hi to everybody? Give everybody a regal wave. Well, glad to be here. Um, I, I do meet with David Berkowitz. We meet twice a month. Um, I'm conducting a 100-hour non-clinical case study. Uh, for those of you that understand case studies, usually there's a process you go through with the IRB. I'm not going through that process, uh, but we will be featuring uh, his, uh, the data that I collect in the next couple of years into a book format. Uh, myself and Don Wilkerson, you might be familiar with Don Wilkerson, his brother David Wilkerson, who started Teen Challenge. Uh, we're both uh, going into the prison to do a podcast uh, interview with him. I met with Don at his home over the summer for a couple of days. Uh, so there'll be a podcast that'll serve as a prelude to the book. You'll hear a little bit about his story in today's message. Um, we're going to be exploring the interplay between mental health and demonic possession. Now, I'm not a devil preacher ordinarily, but if you spend 38 hours, that's what's complete so far, 38 hours with the son of Sam doing data collection, I promise you Satan is going to become a very real part of your theology, all right? So I want to talk to you about Satan today, but I want to talk to you about an enemy that preys on the afflicted, that if, if there's affliction... We see this with the book of Job. It is an invitation for oppression. 
That wherever there is affliction, you'll see it in your own life. It'll be a motif, a running theme, that any time you are afflicted in your life, whether it be physically, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, whenever you are afflicted, chances are the oppressor, the liar, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy is not far. The Bible says that Satan came in the book of Job when the hedge was down. So this morning, I want to talk to you from a passage of Scripture. Ironically, it's uh, David Berkowitz's favorite passage of Scripture. It's in Mark chapter 5. It's the story of a demoniac man. And I want you to see this morning that this morning, some of us from a very young age have been targeted. Somebody say targeted. Satan Given the fact that he has resources that have been rationed by the Almighty, he is very fussy in whom he focuses on. The Bible says he seeks the earth, not looking for anyone, but looking for someone whom he may devour. He's very selective in who he picks, and he often preys on those that are vulnerable. Now, I know maybe you're a little skeptical. Listen, you're talking to a guy, PhD in behavioral science, uh, classes in sociology, criminology, psychology, victimology, all the ologies pertaining to human behavior. I understand neurotransmitters. I get human behavior. But when you look at evil, when you square off with the evil that the enemy commits, you've got to walk away and realize that this is not just psychology. This is not just bad human behavior, but John 10. 10 stands true. We have an enemy who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but Jesus has come to give life. How many believe that? In fact, I believe some of you, you've been on hell's hit list from the time you were a young child, and I pray that this morning's message would shed some light on that. Amen? Father, bless this word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Mark 5. Thank you for David Berkowitz. Thank you that he's been a committed Christian since 1988. He's discipling 15 men in Shoregunk Correctional Facility, preparing for chapel Bible studies every Tuesday and Thursday. We pray an anointing on his life. We pray that his ministry would continue. The amazing grace of God, the gospel, a gospel that is not potent enough to save a serial killer is no gospel at all. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here that's under either demonic possession or oppression. Either way, Lord, that this passage would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you out of Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, if you want to open your Bible, I'm reading from the NIV. Can you have a little more volume in the microphone? Just a little bit more. Thank you. Bible says they went across the lake to the region of the Gadarenes. That's going to be important in a minute. Jesus gets out of the boat. A man with an impure spirit comes from the tombs to meet him. This man has lived in the tombs and no one, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. The people, they put chains on this man. 
Verse 4, it says he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart. He broke the irons on his feet, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones. He saw Jesus from a distance. He ran. He fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted, what do you want with me, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Jesus said to the man, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. Somebody say Legion. We are many. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding in the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave the pigs or the, the demons permission. The impure spirits came out and they went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down into the bank, into the lake, and drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off. They reported this to the countryside. The people went out to see what happened. They came to Jesus. They see the man dressed in his right mind. They see the man saved. They see him delivered. But then they see the pigs, and the pigs are drowned in the sea. And the Bible says they beg Jesus to leave the region. Let's talk about this. The Bible describes Satan as a thief. Now, I didn't grow up a Christian. I grew up robbing houses. I was in juvenile detention at 17 years old. First time I heard the gospel, Sakonansi Crossroad. In the, in the training school, Pastor Mike Krautman still shares the gospel in the training school. He shared the gospel. I gave my life to Christ. I'd spent years as an adolescent robbing houses, robbing cars. I even robbed a Providence police car. That takes a little fortitude, no? Well, you know, a thief, uh, if you know anything about stealing, if you were a thief or you maybe are related to a thief, a thief is looking for something. The Bible says in John 10.10 10, that Satan is a thief. A thief is looking for something that is vulnerable and he's looking for something that is valuable. May I submit to you that Satan, if he's looking for someone, not just anyone, the Bible says he's roaming the earth and he's looking for someone. In Job chapter one, the Bible says God sees Satan and what is he doing? He's roaming. He says, I'm looking for someone. First Peter describes him as a lion looking for someone. If he's looking for someone as a thief, he's looking for someone that is vulnerable and someone that is valuable. Now, as a thief, you usually look for a home. You're looking for a home. The mail is stacked up. The car's not in the driveway. The lights are off. Usually means the family's on vacation. We have a home that's vulnerable. But we're also looking for something that's valuable. We're looking for something that says there's wealth. There's something here that's expensive. It's rare. And when the enemy seeks, he's looking for prey. He's looking to oppress those that are vulnerable and those that are valuable. You know, there's a story of a hunter. He's out in the woods. He's on a woodsy expedition. He bumps into a bear. How many jokes begin this way? It's probably quite a few. 
So the, the hunter pulls out his gun. He's all ready. His training kicks in. He's about to shoot the bear, except this bear is a wily bear. He's a smooth talker. And the bear says, whoa. He says, before you shoot, he says, do we really need bloodshed? He said, let's negotiate. Just a little peaceful compromise. Hunter says, what do you mean? He says, will you tell me what you're looking for? I'll tell you what I'm looking for, and we'll come to a happy medium somewhere. The hunter says, well, I'm looking for, I'm looking for a fur coat. And the bear says, that, that's reasonable, completely reasonable. I'm just looking for a little lunch, that's all. We can negotiate. We can come to a happy agreement between the two of us. Bloodshed is not necessary. The hunter begins to lower his gun, and then a minute later, the bear walks away with a full stomach and the hunter got his fur coat. There's no good deal with the devil. You can't negotiate with a terrorist. In this passage, we have a man who is vulnerable, and we're going to go through some of those, to use a clinical term, we're going to go through those risk factors. What puts this man at risk? In fact, if you look in the DSM, it is the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, 251 Neurotic and Psychotic Disorders. You'll see with every mental illness, there are risk factors. What is it that makes this man vulnerable? Because the relationship between Satan and humanity is very much like the relationship between fire and what is flammable. Satan is a arsonist. He's a pyromaniac, and he's looking for something that is flammable. And if you've grown up in a certain background, you've come from a certain lifestyle, there's a certain uh, genealogy or genetics to who you are, then you become flammable. And arsonist is looking to light a fire, and he's hoping that when he lights that fire, whatever he lights on fire is something flammable. What is it that makes you flammable? That's the question. What is it that makes this man in this story, what is it that makes him vulnerable? In the end, we'll get into it, what makes him so valuable. Can I talk to you about the man's tribe? Can I talk to you about his trauma? And can I talk to you about his temperament? Because there are three, three factors to look at in this passage. We're going to do a little excavation of the text. I, I want to encourage you to get, if any, you're going to get any kind of Bible commentary, get a guy named William Barclay. He's a historian. He's a, a master at linguistics, and he does some good digging into this passage and what's happening within the history of this passage. And through the eyes of William Barclay, through the lens of the Holy Spirit, this morning we're going to ask the question, what is it that makes this man so vulnerable? His tri tri tribe? His trauma? and his temperament. Let's talk about the tribe. The Bible says they restrain him. The Bible says they put chains on him. He's making some kind of commotion. He's uh, shown himself to be threatening. He, may, has, he may, may have shown himself to be a nuisance 
to be bothersome, to be annoying, to be irritating. He's making all kinds of noise. He's throwing all kinds of uh, tantrums. He's having all kinds of fits. There may be somebody in your family right now. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a niece or a nephew. Maybe it's a cousin. And that person has just become too much trouble. There's too much trouble. They become too annoying. They make too much noise. Every time they show up at the holiday dinner, they show up at your house on a Sunday morning. Maybe they even come to church with you. And it's just, they just weigh too much. They're too much of a heavy load. And the Bible says that this man had become such a nuisance. He becomes such an annoyance. He makes so much commotion. The Bible says they shackle him. They lack the power to restore him. So they do what second best to restoring him rather than restoring him they restrain him now you may have grown up in a family maybe they didn't have the power of God they didn't have the gospel they weren't anointed they didn't have a, a ministry maybe they didn't even know Jesus and they didn't know how to save you so the best they could do was subdue you the Bible says that this man, he is from the kind of tribe that they don't know how to restore him. This is the Gadarenes. It's one city of 10 cities known as the Decapolis. And in this city, they did not have the gospel. They had not yet encountered Christ. They didn't even have the Old Testament. This is not a Jewish neighborhood. This is very much pagan. They're very much in the dark ages. They don't know how to save the man the best they can do is subdue the man. Now, in our couth society, we're not putting chains on people as much unless they break the law, but we do put chains on them, chemical chains. We can't save them, so we subdue them. Now listen, I understand medications, I get psychotropics, I understand neurotransmitters, I teach classes on neurobiology, I know exactly what Wellbutrin does for your dopamine levels, I know what uh, lithium does to your serotonin, I get it, I know that much of psychology is biology, and sometimes we need to restrain people, and I'm not against restraining people, but let's face it, restraining people is not the same thing as restoring people people and some of the issues we face are not just a matter of biology but they are a matter of theology and there is an enemy and much of restoration is not just chemical work it's soul work Andrew Delbanco he's a Columbia University professor he's a secularist he wrote a book called the death of Satan in the book, he's very candid, he's very transparent, he's frustrated, he's frustrated that there's so much evil in the world that we've dismissed the notion of Satan, a secularist complaining about our removal of Satan from society, and he begins the book with this profound statement. This is coming from a secularist, a person who does not believe in God. The very opening phrase of the book, he says, a gulf has open in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. Selah. He's saying all of our theories, all of our therapies, 
all of our treatments have failed us. We've got so much evil. You may argue for medication, and I don't think there's anything wrong with medication, but pills don't get to the heart of the issue. They simply restrain. They do not restore. There have been 400 mass shootings since January, unprecedented bloodshed, and we have more psychotropics available than ever before. Unprecedented bloodshed meets unprecedented psychological treatments. The visibility of evil and the lack of theory to cope with it. We once argued that if people would only get educated, that it was a lack of education and why people act barbarically until the Holocaust. Then we discovered that it was geniuses. It was madmen with college degrees and doctorates that orchestrated the Holocaust. And we realized that even intellects can behave barbarically. In the words of C.S. Lewis, education without values only makes makes man a more clever devil. We argue lack of social support. And Marxism taught us, you take the means of production, you put it in the hands of the oppressed, and in very soon time, the oppressed often become oppressors. We argue, it's well, the, the answer's in medication. The answer's got to be in pills. It's got to be in mindfulness. Yet all of these things are in abundance and more evil, senseless evil, not the evil of the crusades or the evil that there's some kind of cause, not that that's right, but the evil of maybe the gladiators, the evil of war, all of these things are wrong, but there's such a senselessness when a mother drowns her own children in a bathtub, there's such a senselessness in the evil of our day and age that we have to walk away and say, we need a tribe that's not going to just subdue people, but a tribe that's going to save people the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's soul work. I want you to notice something else about this tribe. The Bible says Jesus heals the man. He's delivered. He's dressed in his right mind. He's at peace. And now the tribe see that they're pigs. By the way, the pigs is their industry. They make their money off the swine. The pigs have drowned, but the man is delivered. And rather than rejoicing in the man being delivered, they beg Jesus to leave because the pigs have drowned. This tribe, the pigs, are more important than a soul. And how many of us come from tribes where the pigs were more important than a soul? Pig can mean many things. It could mean in your family, it was more important looking good than feeling good. Image was more important than your well-being when the things of this world are more important than the things of the spirit. We have a tribe that doesn't really care for this man. And I got news for you. Usually people that commit atrocities, if you look at the life of David Berkowitz, he grew up in a tribe. The best they could do was restrain him. His third grade teacher was putting him in chokeholds. Nobody knew how to restore him. The tribe. Let's talk about the trauma. Can we talk about the trauma? Are we learning anything here? Am I too loud for this quiet bunch? 
I always tell my wife that. So we're going to this is a very quiet church. You know, I, no, you know, no offense. I love you guys. I preach like at African American churches in New York City, and it's like you know, it's like jumping up and down. So I gotta get, I gotta like acclimate, just acclimate. These are cerebral types. <laughs> my stepfather's from the Bronx, so that's probably where the New York accent comes in. He raised me from the time I was a kid. We always went back and forth to the city. And uh, I want you to see the trauma. Jesus asked this man, hey, what's your name? Well, he's talking to the man of the demon. It's a little bit of a debate amongst the scholars. But he says, what is your name? The man says, legion, for we are many. Barclay, here's where Barclay comes in. Barclay makes the point, being a historian, that this man is living in an area that very, very, a uh, short time before Jesus arrived, a Roman legion had decimated that entire territory. He's a survivor of Roman decimation. Roman legions would come in, they'd decimate an area, they would savage the community, decimate, they'd just come in, they'd slaughter. I mean, they were savages, the Roman legions. They would just murder, bloodshed, they'd take all the booty of the land, all the, all the treasures, they would leave that land decimated, and here is this man, and he sees with his eyes a legion savage his community, more than likely slaughter his family, and now isn't it interesting, the name of his trauma is also the name of of the demon. May I submit to you the trauma? I don't know one person that's demonized. I've worked with three serial killers, by the way. This is the third. I don't know one that was demonized that wasn't traumatized. Now, I'm not saying everyone is traumatized, is demonized, but I will argue that almost everyone demonized, at least that I've met, were traumatized. This man, he's seen something with his eyes that he could never take back. He heard something with his ears. And some of you have seen some things. You heard some things, domestic violence, sexual abuse. You've felt some things. You've experienced some things. And that trauma becomes a setup for Satan. He lingers in that atmosphere of fear, in that atmosphere of resentment, of unforgiveness. That trauma becomes comes a portal for terror. And by the way, if you grow up Beaver Cleaver, the Huxtables, maybe that's not the right family anymore. Whatever family you go with. If you grow up in a good home, I got news for you. You still experience trauma. How? I'm going to tell you how. God tells this to Eve in the garden. We often think it means the mother, but it also speaks to the baby. He says, because of the curse, because of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, he says, in pain, children will be born. You're a baby. You were nine months snug in your mother's womb. I mean, it was comfortable. Your world was predictable. If you had it your way, you wouldn't go anywhere. In fact, some of you are 40 and haven't left her basement. That's all another sermon. Series. Here you are, nine months in the womb. Everything's comfortable. Everything's predictable. You really believe this is God's plan before the fall? That a baby is comfortable in the womb? It's predictable. It's the only world he or she knows. And all of a sudden, you're in that womb and you feel a little shake, rattle, and roll. You hear some noises. You hear... <laughs> Out from the womb into the world, you see creatures with ginormous heads. 
bright lights. What's the first thing you do? Ah! You know, I'm being funny, but the reality is this is why fear is so instinctual. Fear is instinctual to you. It is. It's, It's instinctual. Faith is intentional. Fear is just hardwired into you. It's part of the curse. It's part of living in a fallen world that in pain, the term in Hebrew means deep agony. It means trauma. In trauma, you and I were born. So even if we grew up in the most perfect home, which I don't even really know if it exists, hello? Even if we grew up in a great family, we were conceived, born, delivered in trauma. David Berkowitz, I could, I could get, go on and on about his birth circumstances. Now listen, you may not think that this is a big deal, and I'm all for adoption. He was adopted, but the reality is this. Behavioral scientists have shown that 16% of serial killers are adopted compared to 2% of the general population. Eight times the general population. Because when you're in the womb, Oxytocin begins to flow, the neurotransmitter called the cuddling chemical, the bonding hormone. Oxytocin works in conjunction with sensory neurons. You file away the smell of your mother's body, the sound of her voice. Studies have shown that when a baby is in a room, firstborn infant baby, that baby will detect a mother's face, detect that mother's voice. Amidst five, six, seven people, a bond is formed. Is adoption wonderful? I thank God for it. It's a much better alternative than abortion. That's for sure. I thank God for the families in here that God has called you to an adoption ministry. But let me just tell this to you because we need to see the reality of this so that we don't just tell our adopted kids to be grateful for their new family, but to recognize that a bond was severed. Now, do most people that are adopted grow up pretty well adjusted? Yes. But is there a percentage that that trauma, for whatever reason, because of the genetic predisposition of their makeup from the time they're in the womb, for whatever reason, did something to their ability to bond? So the trauma. This man, he's seen some things. Legion. He's experienced some things. And because of that, he's at risk. He's vulnerable. The third factor I want you to see is the Bible says this man's cutting himself. We could argue the demon itself is making him cut himself, but chances are there's something in this man's makeup. We'll call it a masochistic temperament because I believe that masochism comes in many forms. It's not just cutting yourself with stones. Some of you cut yourselves when you go home with razor blades. Some of you are cutting yourselves with your own tongue, with the way you talk to yourself, when you look at yourself in the mirror. May I submit to you that the enemy is looking for people that hate themselves because if he can get you to hate you and he hates you then wherever there's two there's agreement and wherever there's agreement there's power I pray anybody here that has a masochistic spirit on you I pray today you would realize you've been made in the image of God that you are the temple of God And if you're a believer, you bear resemblance to your big brother, Jesus Christ. He has made you in his image. You're his. 
But to participate in this kind of cutting of oneself, to go down this road of constantly berating the very image of God, you are not just trashing yourself, you are trashing God's son, God's daughter, you are someone else's property, you are vandalizing the temple of God. And it is an invitation. It puts you at risk. It makes you vulnerable for the oppressor. He's looking for the hedge to be down. Now, I tell you why the man's vulnerable, but let me tell you the most important part. And I'm going to open this up for questions and answers. We're going to spend some time in Q&A today rather than the, the normal group. Not only is he valuable, or not only is he vulnerable, but he's valuable. You know why he's valuable? This area is in darkness. This area has never seen the Savior. This area hasn't even known the Torah. It's not a Jewish territory, the Gadarenes. It's one of ten cities, Decapolis. It's full of paganism. Here comes Jesus, and this man is the first. Somebody to say the first. This is the first seed of a mighty harvest. In fact, if you study ten years forward... 10 years after this particular passage, you will find out that there was a mighty revival, a major harvest in this particular territory, and this man was the first seed of that harvest. I believe today, if you're the first, you're targeted. If you're the first person to get saved in your family, you're the first person to be delivered, you're the first person to be healed, you're the first person to break generational curses, you're the first person that embraces a better life than your predecessors. If you are the first, my gut tells me that you are under attack, that you have an enemy that knows your name. Your name was not picked randomly out of a hat. Your face was selected out of a lineup. He is strategic. Your enemy is militant. He understands warfare and he's looking to attack the first. He's vulnerable, but he's very valuable. Now that's good news for you. You know why? The enemy would love you to think the reason why he's attacked you, the reason why you were molested by your grandfather treated harshly by your stepfather, stepmother, is because there's something wrong with you. May I submit to you, it's not because there's something wrong with you. May I submit to you, it's because there's something right with you. When Pharaoh attacked the Jews in Exodus, he attacked them because the Bible says he saw that they were a mighty nation with great potential. He saw they had power to increase and because not because they were so pathetic, but because they were so prophetic, they were so powerful, the enemy attacked them and the enemy has been attacking you since the days of your youth, not because you're so pathetic. You believe for a long time there must be something wrong with me. The good news is you are attacked because there's something right with you. There's something valuable about you. The call of God is on your life and Satan chases whom God chooses. He chases whom God chooses. So if, the, if, the, if you're chosen, you're wondering, why, 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 why me? Why was I picked out? 
I got news for you. The vulnerable and the valuable are not too far apart. What makes you so valuable is the fact that you're so vulnerable. Here's what's so interesting. Satan prays on the weak, and God chooses the weak. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, God chose the vulnerable things of the world. He chose the weak things. So we have an enemy who's looking for the vulnerable, and we have God saying, I want the vulnerable, and the enemy knows God can use the vulnerable, so he's right there attacking the vulnerable, and there's this fine line between the vulnerable and the valuable. What makes you so valuable is the fact that you're so vulnerable. Because God can use weakness. He works through weakness. He prays through, the Spirit prays through our weakness. The enemy prays on your weakness. God prays through your weakness. You are chosen. You are called by him. And for that reason, you've been oppressed. David Berkowitz said to me, Mike, he said, this, the satanic attacks, they began when I was about six years old. He said, I used to have urges to jump in front of subway trains. My parents would have to hold me, adopted parents, have to hold me against the back wall of the New York City subway. He said, my sixth floor tenement building, 1107 Barnes Ave, Soundview section of the Bronx, not too far from my stepfather grew up. He said, I, I would, out of that sixth floor window, he said, I'd go onto the fire escape and I would sit as close to the edge of the fire escape as I possibly could with these suicidal urges to jump. He said, you know what's interesting though? That same time, I heard the audible voice of God. I was about five or six years old. He said, the voice of God was crystal clear. I heard it. So I heard the voice of God twice. So I heard it once tenderly, and then a year later, I was up to some mischief, and I heard it sternly. He said, but in that same time, there was this heavy oppression. So you see, you got this bidding war. How valuable are you that both Satan and God, well, heaven and hell, are bidding against your soul? How valuable are you? Hallelujah. There's a lot said. I think what I want to do is I want to stop right here. I want to open the floor for any, uh, any questions about this passage questions about David Berkowitz, I may not answer, I may. Uh, questions about Unmuted, what I do, the books, anything you want to ask, behavioral science, anything you want to ask, go ahead and ask. Yes? So do you believe that people who are saved can receive salvation? Probably heard this Can be possessed. Yeah. Well, Ephesians tells us and he's talking to believers in Ephesians. Apostle Paul addresses the church of Ephesus. Save believers. He tells them to be careful when they get angry. He says that when you're angry, if you don't handle the anger appropriately, you let it settle. When anger settles, it turns into resentment, turns into grudges, it turns into bitterness. Bitterness is anger that has sat too long. Okay, Anger itself comes from the character of God. He gets angry. But anger that sits too long becomes bitterness. He says that bitterness, Ephesians, it's not me talking, that bitterness, talking to believers, becomes a foothold for the devil. Term foothold means a place of occupancy. Now, does he possess the temple? 
Here's how I answer this. Old press, possessed, does it really make a difference? If I have a tenant living on the first floor and they don't own the home, but they are a rowdy, riotous uh, tenant, they cause all kinds of ruckus, even though they don't live in every room in the house and even though their name isn't on the deed, that tenant is enough to drive me to drink. (laughs) You hear what I'm saying? Enemy only needs a little room. And do I believe in possession? Probably not. But do I believe that oppression can bring even a believer, a born-again believer, to a point of madness in their minds? I have to say yes to that. Does that help? Thank you. Yes. Hmm. Well, I think sometimes we have to realize that people are truly afflicted. And the minute we take that perspective that they're afflicted, it's a very common word used in the scriptures, afflicted. It doesn't just mean physical. It also means psychological. David uses it in the Psalms, the term afflicted, most of the time to mean psychological. So David's acknowledging mental health issues 7,000 years or 5,000 years ago. I see someone is sick, that itself warrants more mercy and patience than it does judgment. If somebody walks in my house, they're blind, they knock over a vase, I don't treat them the same way as somebody walking in with a baseball bat swinging intentionally. There's mercy, there's patience. So I, I tend to see a lot of those kinds of issues, especially we are describing, which could be a personality disorder, could be a mood disorder, could be a lot of things. But chances are, from what you described, is somebody that, is afflicted. And because they're blind, blindness necessitates from me, elicits from me, compassion. Cliche answer, but it's the truth, right? Somebody else, yes. Teen challenge is a big part of the ministry. Well, I'll answer that question with, with, with saying I have the same limitations as the farmer planting the seed. I can't get the ground ready. I mean, there's some harrowing and plowing, I guess, but nothing makes a ground softer than a storm. So my point is life and all of its storms will bring that hardened person in your family to a place of receptivity. Because after the storm, whatever the storm is in their life, divorce, 
whatever it is, sickness, usually they're a lot softer. The ground is a lot more tender. I have the fortunate privilege of usually dealing with people that are out of the storms. The storms have passed. They're in prison. They're in TC centers. So in one sense, the people I'm dealing with is easier because the ground's softer than maybe the guy walking around, everything's going well in life. Jesus' statement back in the Gospels is harder for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'm dealing with people that, believe it or not, yeah, they were hardened, but in the TC centers and in prison, the ground is soft. The storms have come. It's broken up the hard places. It's made it easier to plant the seeds. Yes. Yeah. Hi, Tracy. Everybody say hi, Tracy. Tracy's got her whole family with her, by the way. Wow. I'm glad you said that. Can I speak to that? Yes. I, I think uh, one of the biggest lies that the church has bought into in helping people that are coming out of painful pasts is to tell them the nonsense, forget the past. Stop living in the past. Well, those are poor physicians that really don't know what they're talking about because they're not living in the past. The past is living in them, number one. Number two, forgetting something, how's that working out for you? You forget, the more you try to forget something, the more you solidify the memory of it. Of course, you use scripture verses where Paul says, forgetting the things behind, but Paul speaks in that context of his accolades that made him conceited. He's talking about things that made him prideful. The weight of scripture would tell you that your past is important. The prophets tell Israel their past all the time. Joseph didn't forget a thing. He didn't look at his brothers and say, oh, who are you? What did you do to me? Oh, that pit, I forgot about the pit. Well, you meant for evil. Don't think I forgot a, a single part of it. God meant for good. So I always tell pastors when they have me come and I do uh, workshops and recovering from trauma, they'll say, uh, Dr. Caparelli, the problem with the people of this church is they remember the past too much. I'll say on the contrary, they don't remember it enough. Trauma affects the hippocampus. That's the memory part of the brain. In such a way where usually you highlight, you accentuate the pain of what happened to you. Oftentimes forgetting all the blessings and the hand of God that was along the way. So healing, is, healing happens when we remember the whole story. Your testimony. 
That's just a, it's a tragedy if all you tell is the parts that are painful. But when you tell about how God used it, where God was and all that, how he's used it since then, when you begin to tell the whole story, now you go from tragedy to testimony. What story are you telling? Because what's hurting you more than your experiences are your explanations of your experiences. How you say it and how you see it. In the clinical world, we call this narrative therapy. Your therapist is getting you to do this all the time. They're trying to get you to tell your story, trying to get you to see the totality of it, pointing some things out that maybe you've forgotten or missed along the way. Because the truth is, when you look back, you will not just see a trail of blood, but you will see footprints in the sand if you look again. From the days of your youth, he's been with you. Every pit, there was a hand that pulled you out of that pit. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Great question. Um, yeah, I think if you start with the word, I want to say start with the word. Okay, this is where I'm going to differ from maybe a lot of, maybe some preachers that you hear tell you, memorize the Bible, memorize the Bible, memorize the Bible, memorize the Bible. Read the Bible more. If you start with the word, you're going to find the word is pointing to a lot of other things. The word points to koinia, fellowship. The word points to worship. The word points to a cheerful heart, things that make you cheerful. The word points to a lot of places. So if you start with the word, obviously the word becomes our filter. We're in it. It's in us. I, I believe the Bible's the greatest psychology book ever written. I don't read it. It reads me. It's a mirror. James calls it a mirror. I look in the mirror. It confronts the sinner in me. It unlocks the winner in me. The sinner in me comes from Adam. The winner in me, in Latin, they say, Imago Dei, the image of God, comes right from the Heavenly Father. That book gets right to the core. Hebrew says it's a sword. It gets right to my intentions. Exactly why I do what I do. Erickson, Young, Freud, none of them. In fact, a lot of them plagiarize what Solomon and what the scriptures said a long time ago. This book is the greatest psychology book ever written. So I start with the word. I continue in the word, but I find the word, if you're really honest, is pointing to a lot of other things. Amen? It's, I find it funny people say just memorize the word. Well, if it's all about Bible memorization, the Bible that I'm memorizing is telling me to fellowship more. Right? It's, the, it's telling me to get counsel. 83 times the term counsel is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 83 times. We say, Christians say, well, counsel is not of God. Really? Is the Bible of God? Yes. 83 times the term counsel is in the Bible. Does that help? Thank you. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. Yes. What, what prison were you in? Okay. Uh, you, then you know Ken Finley. Yeah. Ken has actually a copy of uh, one of my books and, and gave it to all 1,500 inmates. Somebody paid for that. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. And that's what happened to David Berkowitz. He was in prison for 10 years. He was arrested in 1977, actually 11 years. 1988, an inmate kept ministering to him, ministering to him, gave him a Bible. David would go back, read his Bible, go back, read his Bible in his cell. Now, I'm expecting the son of Sam, guy that murdered six, wounded nine. I'm expecting if there's going to be a demonic deliverance, it's going to be like, go get the popcorn. This is like a Stephen King. Like I, I asked David the story. I said, Dave, tell me about the deliverance story. This is going to be good. I know it is. Like, did your head spin around like Linda Blair? Did you have convulsions? With, like, tell me what happened. I'm waiting for some juicy. Come on, just be honest. You like juicy stories too. Don't act all churchy on me, all right? Stop, you're lying. So you know what he tells me? He says, well, this is to your point. He just came to this point of being still and, and surrendering after 11 years of fights with inmates. He's got, a, he's got a, a wound across his neck. He was stabbed in the middle of his neck by an inmate, shanked, okay? He says, you know, you, know, you know what the deliverance looked like? This demonic deliverance? He said, I read my Bible. I started crying. I got on my knees. I sobbed in repentance for about two hours. I went to sleep. It was the best sleep I ever had in my life. I got up, and it was like a 1,000 pounds had been lifted from me. It was quiet. I, you know, and I, I wanted some understanding of why so quiet, this stillness you speak of. His entire life was an adrenaline rush. It was all a thrill. He's an adrenaline junkie. And, he, and here God comes, not in the earthquake, not in the wind, but in the still small voice wasn't going to give him more of the adrenaline. You know, the adrenaline, by the way, a lot of us are adrenaline junkies. We keep going. We keep moving. Adrenaline flows. You know why? You know why we like adrenaline so much? It is one of the neurotransmitters that anesthetizes pain in your body. You don't feel emotional or physical pain, which, by the way, physical and emotional pain on an fMRI, the same thing. So when adrenaline's flowing, you don't feel anything. That's why it's so hard to be still. When you still all the pain that you're pushing down and trying to, you gotta go, oh. all that pain comes bubbling to the top. I gotta face what I feel. I, I work out every day. Sometimes I'll, there'll be an injury in the morning. I won't feel it, feel it till the evening. Has that ever happened to anybody? Because I'm on adrenaline all day. I'm laying down, the adrenaline subsides, the pain becomes alive. That's what happens in prison for many of them. That's what happened with Berkowitz, that still place. It's where God delivered him. Somebody else. We'll take, can I take one more? Yes, one more. So, I want to tell you first, that was a fascinating message. Thank you, thank you. Mm. 
<laughs> What's his first name? Can I, can I stop right now and pray for him? Can we all pray for Austin? Father, we thank you for Austin. We thank you for the call on his life. We thank you that you, this man, this father who's here today is not here today by accident, but by providence. We, for this moment, for this very moment, we plead the blood of Jesus over Austin's soul. We, we speak every promise in your book over his life. Lord, we know Satan's chased him, but you've chosen him. I pray that he would come to himself, just like the prodigal in Luke 15. He would realize who he is in your house. He would realize who his daddy is. And today, Lord, he would be free. I pray today, from this day forward, these Egyptians he sees, he will see no more. From this day forward, I pray, deliverance in his life. And can we all say in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to keep Austin in prayer. I have one question. Yes. Yes. Can I take one minute with this? One minute is important. Let me, let, me, let me speak to that. God does supernatural things, but sometimes he puts the super in the natural. Moses had a stick in his hands. God could have just parted the Red Sea without any stick. He asked Moses, what's in your hands? He, he anointed the stick, and the stick part of the seas. God can anoint medication. I'm not saying medication is the source or the answer. Facts are there are we can see it on an fMRI. There are brains that are lacking in certain neurotransmitters. And usually people that are lacking in a particular neurotransmitter are drawn to narcotics that matches that particular neurotransmitter. It's called self-medicating. Those that are lacking dopamine will be attracted to stimulants. Those that are lacking serotonin will be attracted to opioids, heroin. Those that lack GABA are often attracted to alcohol. So it, there's probably a real argument here that your son that there is a chemical deficiency and God can use the medication the key is the medication is not the answer it's just the stick in the hands it's just a tool as long as he keeps his focus on God don't come against the medicine just be there to stand to support him to remind him that the medicine is not the answer but it could be a part of the solution does that make sense okay God bless you guys